open up your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians. We are in a series uh, in this wonderful letter full of encouragement. And this morning we'll be in verses 13 through 16 in chapter 2. I trust receiving encouragement uh, for Christians uh, living in, in a world that often can make us weary. Let me pray, and then we'll read and go from there. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for this wonderful letter. Thank you for the encouragement, the substantial encouragement it brings us. And I pray this morning as we look at these truths that, that your people will be encouraged by you, Lord. They will be more aware of you uh, and what you do and how you're working than anything else. And I pray for those that are yet to put their faith in you, that they would be drawn to you, they would see what you're like and be attracted, and you'd uh, speak to them as well, Lord. We thank you that you love us and care for us. Thank you that you've given us your word, and you are a living God, and your word is living and active, that we might hear from you and walk with you. So bless this time. Help me, Lord, to, to teach and proclaim your word and to serve you and what you want to do here this morning. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Chapter 2 starting in verse 13. Paul says, And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. For you brothers became imitators of the churches of God and Christ Jesus, that are in Judea. For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews, who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out, and displeased God and opposed all mankind by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved, so as always to fill up the measure of their sins. But God's wrath has come upon them at last. God's word from 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. Now we're... The title of this message is The Word at Work. The Word at Work. In 1993, uh, Peg and I and our uh, three of our children at that time uh, lived on Mission Hill in Roxbury, Massachusetts. I don't know if you know where that is. It's inner city. Um, and we decided to grow pumpkins that year. Actually, I decided to grow prize pumpkins. Uh, didn't really know what I was doing, uh, but just basically bought a seed packet of prize pumpkins and planted them in our little tiered garden we had on the side of a hill on our uh, property. Um, I didn't, again, know what I was doing. I didn't know how to do it. I just planted the seeds. And miracle of miracles, those little seeds produced humongous pumpkins. Um, they were so large, and one of them was so large, actually, that we, we entered it into a contest. Um, we went to a pumpkin party, a, a kind of a fall festival sort of party, and it had a pumpkin contest, and we brought our pumpkin, and we won second prize in this. And, and just so you know, the competition uh, was included like farmers and people who knew what they were doing. First prize was, was won by a guy who was a farmer. I didn't know, actually, you're supposed to like pull off all the buds but one, so you can just grow one pumpkin on every vine. I didn't know that. I just grew it. And, and our pumpkin was, was huge. It was, 
I don't know, 175 pounds. It was this giant pumpkin. And we won second prize. It was just kind of funny. Here's a pumpkin grown in inner city Boston beating the prize pumpkin from the farmer. Uh, it, was, it was just really cool to watch that and to watch the miracle of, of that, those pumpkins growing. Why do I tell you that story? Well, I'm not trying to pat myself on the back for uh, pumpkin growing prowess. Uh, it's to point at a truth that's in our passage. That the seed of the Word of God, the seed of the Word of God produces amazing results. And that's what Paul is reminding the Thessalonians here of, is that the Word has been at work among them and has produced amazing results. That God's Word produces amazing results. It gets planted and it creates a people, and it creates a people who look like Jesus. That's what he's saying here. And so, what does this teach us? Well, we should be glad and we should put our trust in the Word of God because it produces amazing results. So let's dig into to each section here and just talk about that and, and learn about it. First, the word, um, the word of God is received by believers. Paul is thanking God in, in, in verse 9 of chapter 2. He's thanking God for them. He's uh, re- remembering uh, what, what has gone on. He's thanking God constantly that they received the Word of God, which they heard from, from Him. Actually, the, the first three chapters, um, so chapters 1 through the end of chapter 3, is really all thanksgiving. And, and you can kind of see that Paul again and again says, we thank God, we thank God. And then he talks about many different things. And so this part of this letter is meant to be encouragement. It's, it's him thanking God, pointing them to God's activity. And so he's starting on a new section, a new aspect of what he's thanking God for. And he's thanking God for the Word of God at work among them. He's thankful that the Word, the word is producing fruit in their lives. It, it may seem like a minor thing. It, it may seem like, well, of course, I, you know, they're, they're believing, they're obeying, so what's the big deal? But, but it's no small deal to Paul. It's a big deal. He's celebrating because something amazing is going on in their lives. Something radical is going on in their lives. There is significant fruit being produced in their lives through the Word of God. Now, it's important to understand when he says the, the Word of God that's at work among them, he, he means certainly the entire Word of God. This, this Bible is the Word of God. It, it contains the very words of God. It's given to us uh, so that we might have what we need uh, to, to know God and to relate to Him and to walk with Him. It's sufficient for our relationship with God, but it, it's God's Word in its entirety. But also when Paul talks like that, saying the Word of God, it's shorthand for the Gospel message, which is the core of the Word of God. The Bible is not just a random assembly, assemblage of books and stories and, and principles and so forth. It's ordered by one author, capital A, though using many human authors. And because of that, it, it has a, a theme and it has a, a central message. The center of the Word of God is Jesus, God the Son, and the truth of Jesus in, in His life and death and uh, resurrection. The truth of Christ, that God becoming a man, dwelling among us, living a perfect life, a perfect life of obedience to His Father, fulfilling the Scriptures, loving others, and then offering up that perfect life uh, 
in His substitutional death. He substituted Himself on the cross for us. That's the amazing truth of the good news of what we call the Gospel. Gospel just means good news. He substituted Himself on the cross. He took His righteous, worthy, perfect life that, that deserved no condemnation, no punishment, and He substituted that life for your life because the reality for you and for me is that our lives um, are not perfect. And worse than that, we have rebelled against God. We have pursued our own life on our own terms. We've pursued sin. Sin is, is rebellion against God. It's basically saying, I know better. I like something better than I like you, God. I like this thing. I want to live for this thing. That's sin. And we're made by God. We belong to God. He has a prerogative to, to deal with us justly. And, and, and it's true and right as well. Of course, the Creator, as the perfectly good one, the powerful one, is worthy of our lives. And so any sort of rebellion against Him is, is cosmic crime. So the wages of sin is death. That God uh, banishes us from His presence, banishes us from relationship with Him, and we live in death uh, in our natural state. And if we continue in that natural state, we'll live there for eternity. The good news, that's the bad news, right? The good news is that, that Christ has come to substitute Himself in our place, living His righteous life and then offering up Himself to pay for your sins, to pay for my sins in His death on the cross. He dies, He bears the just punishment for sin. Uh, he, he sheds his blood. He dies. He pays it in full. And then on the third day, he rises again, victorious over sin and death. Um, so he conquered sin and death. That's the good news. And now he reigns and he'll return. Uh, that's part of the core of the good news. But this, this good news of Christ's perfect life and substitutionary death and victorious resurrection is the gospel, is the good news, is the core of the whole word of God. So when Paul says the Word of God uh, is at work among you, he's, he means certainly the entirety, but uh, specifically and especially the Word of the Gospel. Paul has gone to Thessalonica with his team, and, and he brought this truth. He proclaimed this truth, and this truth had an effect in their lives. It produced change in them. Uh, they received the Word as it really is, it says. You uh, he's thanking God constantly for this, that when you received the Word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the Word of men, but as it, what it really is, the Word of God, which is at work in you believers. That's really a key statement right there. The Thessalonians, when they heard the good news of the Gospel from Paul and from others there, they didn't think, oh, that's interesting, new idea. wonder who this guy is. I mean, they might have thought that, but... But, but that's not what Paul's saying. It's ultimately they, they, there was something that went on inside of them where they recognized, wait a second, this is just no ordinary message. This is not just another opinion. This isn't just wisdom from a human being. This is something different here. There's something in this truth, in the Gospel, that's from God. And so they received it as the Word of God. That's a wonderful thing. That's what Paul's celebrating. Part of what he's celebrating is that as that word was proclaimed, as it was taught, they didn't just say, oh, human's wisdom, this is interesting. They said, this is God. They recognized that. A miracle took place in the proclamation of the gospel. He's celebrating that, and we're instructed by that. We're instructed to be thankful for his work here, but to recognize some important truths here. To recognize that, that God is the one 
ultimately who works in us to receive His truth. And His truth is the absolute truth. And that, that action of God is at the core of our Christianity. The action of God in revealing to us that the Word that's proclaimed is not just of men, but it is indeed God's very Word. That's the core of our faith. That is the, the groundwork of, of why we believe. It's important to, to kind of wrestle with that a little bit and to recognize the ground of of believing is not that you figured it out. It's not that you heard the arguments and you weighed it and you realized this is more feasible than that. This truth of the Gospel makes more sense than that. Now, it should make sense. God's truth is robust. Uh, it's rational. It's reasonable because it's God's truth. But that is not what verifies it. It is God's truth because it's God's truth. And so our receiving of it is not ultimately that we got to decide that it was true. Oh yeah. I, 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 I've, it's passed my litmus test and now it's truth. Not to say that doesn't go on in our lives. Not to say that we shouldn't think through what's reasonable and rational and, and is it a robust truth. But what Paul's saying is that as they received the word, as it was given, they recognized that this is something different than, than mere human wisdom that I have to weigh and so forth. This is the word of God. God did a miracle in their lives to receive the word. And that's the ultimate evidence to base your faith on, not your ability to figure it out. That may seem confusing, and, and I'd love to try to explain later if you have questions, but it's very important. Because if you put your faith in your ability to reason, then your faith is in what? Your ability to reason. And, and if left to ourselves, we cannot reason ourselves to truth. Uh, the philosophers are right. Left to yourself, all you know is, is I think, therefore I am. That's all you know. And I would submit to you, you don't even know what thinking is and you don't even know what the I is. All you know that is there's something going on. I exist. That's all. I don't even know what it is. I don't even know who I am. I don't even know the truth. That's all you get, ultimately. If you're going to rely on yourself, that's where you end up. Truth has to be based on the fact that the God who made all things reveals Himself to people. He comes in and intervenes and rescues us. And indeed, He uses our rational thought processes and so forth. I'm not denying that. But the core, the foundation can't be that process. It must be that God reveals Himself. God affirms that this is the Word of God. It's the ultimate evidence, the ultimate ground upon which we build everything else. Let me show you from Scripture. Not just from reason and philosophy, though that's woven into all of this. But this is how God does it. So elsewhere we see this. We see it explained and affirmed uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, starting in verse 1. I think we have this project. Good. Uh, and Paul says to the Corinthians, And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come, to you, come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. My speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. These things, uh, verse 10, these things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. 
Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given to us. Verse 14, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he's not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Verse 16, for who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. So 1 Corinthians chapter 2, Paul is teaching that we come to understand truth not through wisdom. And he actually chose when he went to Corinth to not present the gospel in a way that was in line with worldly wisdom, but to simply set, teach about Christ crucified, which was, which was a stumbling block to people. It was folly. It was foolishness. It was ridiculous to the common culture. And it was offensive to, to the Jewish culture. So it had everything going against it, yet his confidence was that God would work in power. So the Spirit's demonstration of power here, by the way, is not in miracles, though those probably went on in Corinth. It's in the power of God to convince people of the truth of the gospel. The power to bring conviction and faith in a transformed life. The power to understand and receive it. Yes, I'm hearing Paul, and otherwise I would think it's either folly or offensive, but as I hear it, God is speaking to me, I respond to it, I turn away from sin and self, and I place my faith in Jesus. That's what's going on. That's what Paul's saying. Jesus says it very similarly, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. Guys, that's the ground, that's the basis of your faith, that God has revealed himself to you. And indeed, again, you can investigate it to see if it's reasonable, rational, robust, and so forth. But that can't be the ground. The ground is that God himself, and it must be that God himself reveals himself to us and gives us eyes to see the gospel and the understanding that this is truth and this is the best truth and it's the truth I want. So Paul celebrates that here. He celebrates that, that this has gone on in this church, that they have experienced this, that they have come to the place where they get it and they've put their faith in, in Christ and there's new life and there's fruit. And he's going to talk about that and we'll get into that. The fruit that attests to this change that's gone on. This phenomenon is going on all over the world even to this day where the gospel, the good news is preached and people receive it as the Word of God. And they don't even necessarily investigate it. They don't need to. That can be part of the process, and indeed God, God uses that process, wrestling through. I've wrestled through with people. I've led people through apologetics to wrestle with, is this reasonable, is it rational, and so forth. And I would submit to you that it's the ultimate reasonable thing. So that process works, but ultimately God reveals himself and says this is the Word, and he works in us faith, and we receive it. And it's happening all over the world. And some people have, have really no exposure to thinking through the process. They hear it and they believe. Leslie and Matia were up here talk, talking about their trip to Punjab. That's what's going on over there. People are sharing the gospel uh, with people who have never heard the name of Jesus. And as that good news is shared and translated, too, from English into the local language, as they're alongside local Indian pastors, there are people who are hearing, having never heard, and understanding, and believing, and receiving. 
and coming to faith in Christ and experiencing forgiveness and being reconciled with God and made sons and daughters. It's glorious. It's wonderful. And, and by the way, they're going, this is the, uh, right now there's fourth generation of churches being planted. So, so fourth generation, third generation churches are now planting fourth generation churches from people that, whatever, 10 years ago or less, heard the gospel, came to faith from a, a background totally unaware of Christian truth, believing, experiencing new life, forming a church, growing in Christ, and now planting other churches. That's what's going on there. And it's going on all over the world. It's wonderful, and, and it happens. And whether it's by ones or twos or threes or by the thousands, God is doing this all over the world. That's what Paul's celebrating, and that's what we should put our confidence in. Again, those other things are important. But ultimately, God is in the business of revealing Himself and affirming that the gospel is truth and working in hearts to receive it as such. And that's a wonderful thing to celebrate. And it's something to put our hope in as well. Let's put our hope in the power of the good news, the simple message of Christ crucified for our sins, raised from the dead, victorious over sin and, sin and death. That message is the most powerful message there is. It transforms the universe. It transforms lives. Let's put our hope in that message. Let's be thankful for how he works. And last night we got to baptize eight people, and each of those eight people have experienced the power of the gospel. And their faith is there not because they figured it out, but because God made himself known in the proclamation, the truth of the gospel. So let us celebrate that. Let us share the gospel. One person has said, and, um, it's attributed to Francis, St. Francis, though he never said it, share the gospel, use words if necessary. I don't know if you've ever heard that saying. It's bogus. I get the sentiment. It's like live the life, right? Don't just talk, don't just talk the talk. Walk the walk. But don't ever think you can share the gospel without words. You have to say, Christ died for my sins and rose again for people to be saved. They have to hear the word. Yes, live the life, but proclaim the word. And it will do its work. It will rescue people. People will come to faith. Yes, love them. Be there for them. Show that you're not just in it to kind of dump the gospel and move on. Yes, do all those things. Let your life adorn the gospel. Let your life verify that this is true. But don't hesitate to share the good news. It's the power of God for salvation. That's what Paul is celebrating here. The word is received by believers because God works in their lives. Second, the word makes us resilient through trials. And this is what Paul points to. So he says, guys, um, you received the word as the word of God. And then he says, which is at work in you. So it's at work. We see it. And he's elsewhere, he reminds them of that. And then he says, for, so he's going to say, how do I know it's at work in you? For you, brothers, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews. So Paul is saying, guys, I know this word is at work because you've suffered from your countrymen. You've endured persecution, and you've been faithful, is the implication, amidst these trials, amidst this persecution. That's evidence that the Word is at work in you. This resilience in persecution, this resilience in trials is evidence of, of the Word at work in your lives. And we can 
look in Acts chapter 17 to see the sorts of things that they experienced. This is when Paul is there earlier. It says in Acts 17, 5 through 9, speaking of uh, earlier, the persecution that went on, it said, but, but the Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, these men have turned their world upside down, have come here also, and Jason has received them. And they're all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And the people and the city authorities were, dis were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as a security for Jason and the rest, they let them go. So they were, there's persecution. There's, it's mob. A mob basically takes this guy Jason and the others out of the house, brings them to the city officials, and, and so it's mob persecution, and at this point, it's government persecution, too. They've gone through persecution already, and, and Paul had to lead as, leave as a result. And, and we know that in history, too, that this was only the start for the Thessalonian believers, for uh, persecution came through Jewish authorities, and persecution came through Roman authorities, and it only got worse, where lives were lost. People were tortured, lost their lives for their faith. And yet Paul is saying the word is at work in you because you guys are suffering and persevering. You are resilient to stand amidst real persecution. The word was at work to create in them a love for God and a love for truth, a love for what is good and glorious. Ultimately, the ultimate truth, the ultimate good thing, the ultimate glorious thing is God himself and his word. And, and it, it creates in us a love for these things and a hatred of what is evil and twisted and corrupted. Out of our love for God, we love what is good and true and glorious. And, and it creates in us and it feeds us to endure and to sacrifice whatever we have to sacrifice, ultimately, if we're called to give our lives. Because of the Word at work in us, because of this new life, because of the love of God and the Gospel and the law, of God and His ways and His kingdom, all these things that are stirred in us through the Word, we have resilience to withstand persecution. That's what Paul is saying. That's what's going on in their lives. And it's not just affliction that comes through persecution that we are resilient in. It's, it's just the trials of life. For the believer, the Word is at work in you to give you resilience in trials. And the reality is, if you live long enough, you will suffer. You will go through trials, whether it's persecution or other trials, you will suffer. And you don't get to determine when and what and how. You don't get to determine that. And it can come in a surprising way. It may come in ways you expect as you age and things like that. But suffering will come. And God's Word will grant you the ability to endure. It's through His Word working in you that you will have the ability to endure. It's interesting, actually. The Bible's view on trials is so different than our culture. It's so different uh, because we have the ability to endure through trials. Um, it, we are actually called to consider it all joy when we face trials of many kinds. That's crazy. We're to consider it all joy when we face trials of many kinds. Because the Word is at work in us to transform how we deal with trials. 
And the Word instructs us about trials. It, it helps us understand their place. First, we learn in the Word that trials never occur outside the sovereign reign of God, outside the permission of God, outside the involvement of God. He is in charge of the trials that come our way. The Word teaches us that so we can look at trials differently rather than panic and think, oh no, what's going on? And, or to maybe place the blame on us. Did we do something wrong here? We recognize that God is sovereign. And indeed, He might bring trials to correct us, but ultimately, as a father, a good heavenly father, He is in charge of that trial, and He promises to use all things, even evil things against us, even trials, to work good in our lives. This is so important to get, guys. It's so important to get now before you're in a season of trial. It's really hard if you've not received this and lived in it or if you're following some sort of other gospel that says if you really believe, you know, you'll have no sickness and you'll always have the, the, the money you need. If you buy into that and you hit trials, it's going to be really hard to relearn and rethink at that point. So we prepare ourselves by receiving the Word ahead of time and recognizing these things ahead of time and immersing ourselves in these truths that God is sovereign and He uses all things to work good in our lives. That good ultimately is to make us like Jesus, to make us more like Jesus. They, they have a way of working in our, our lives. So James says in chapter 1, of his book, count it all joy, my brothers, when you face trials of many kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be mature and complete, lacking in nothing. We count it all joy because as we go through trials, they produce steadfastness. They force us in a way. They force us in a way to look to God for help. They make us desperate. God. They make us realize that, that ultimately God matters more than anything else, and they force us to run to Him, and our steadfastness comes from Him as these truths are ministered to us. They drive us back to Him. They're, they're messengers to, to get us to hold on to Him tightly. So God is sovereign, and He uses those trials to work good in our lives. And third, our trials are only momentary and light, and yet they yield an eternal Reward a heavy weight of glory, the Scripture teaches us. So, I'm not trying to downplay your trials. Trials can be very serious and significant. I'm not trying to say they're not, but compared to what God has in store, compared to how He is working through you, compared to the reward that He brings as you faithfully endure those trials, as you live in the Word and, and He empowers you through the Word, compared to that weight of glory, the eternal weight of glory, they're nothing. Not the, that's right from Scripture. Romans 8 and, and 2 Corinthians 4, actually. We have that verse to put up. It says, for this light momentary affliction, that's what Paul calls some very serious trials. Earlier on in the book of uh, 2 Corinthians, he said they despaired to death. They basically, they were suicidal. It was so hard, they wanted to die. That's how bad their trials were. He calls that sort of trial, for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. They're light, they're momentary. Martin Luther, speaking in light of these truths, says the following. 
If we consider the greatness and the glory of the life we shall have when we have risen from the dead, it would not be difficult at all for us to bear the concerns of this world. If I believe the word, I shall on the last day, after the sentence has been pronounced, not only gladly have suffered ordinary temptations, insults, and imprisonment, but I shall also say, oh, that I did not throw myself under the feet of all the godless for the sake of the great glory which I now see revealed and which has come to me through the merit of Christ. That's what the Scripture teaches us. That's how the Word works with these truths in our lives to be resilient in trials and in persecution. Recently I've been reading the biography of John Patton. John Patton was an early missionary uh, to the South Pacific, the New Hebrides. He went there, uh, this would be back in the mid-1800s. He went at the age of 34 to the island of Tana in the New Hebrides. He went there with his wife and they soon had a baby boy named Peter. They went to this island and they were the only believers on their side of the island. Uh, there were some native believers from another island that helped them. But on that particular island, there were no believers. Matter of fact, they weren't just people that didn't believe in Jesus. They were warlike, treacherous cannibals. And they lived basically among them. And these cannibals had killed and eaten the previous missionaries. And John Patton went there. And not only was it dangerous, but, but it was dangerous in terms of health. And it didn't take long for them to get seriously sick. Uh, his wife Mary and their new son, Peter, died from tropical fever. So very early on, within months of arriving, his wife and his son were killed. Other Christians that were there, other missionaries, all either died of sickness or were murdered brutally by the natives. Eventually, after uh, about, I think it was about four years, he was driven off the island having lost everything. Every worldly possession. His family, his friends. He lost it all. But the Word of God was at work in him. Filling him with promise and hope. Filling him with the remembrance that the Word of God is powerful to work salvation in people's lives. And these people need to hear that Word. And so after some years, I think it was another four years, he returned. He had remarried him and his new wife, and he went on to have ten children. They continued their work on that island. God gave them converts, changed the island, and by the end of their life and on this island, the entire island professed Christ. And then became a sending church to send missionaries to all the other islands full of people who had been like them as well throughout the rest of the New Hebrides. I can't wait to meet John Patton. And I'm sure as he looks back on his life and the, the high cost he paid, it's a high cost. Adam Judson, who was sent out of a first church right here, himself went through things like this and actually lost his mind. He was insane for a time period. Yet God worked in him to restore him and then to send him back and to use him to, to transform Burma. And I know as they are in heaven now experiencing the eternal weight of glory and tasting their reward, they would say with Martin Luther, it was nothing compared to what I have now. Brothers and sisters, the Word of God gives us this ability to be resilient 
And so let us be people of the Word. Let us encourage one another with the Word. Let us encourage one another in trials. And as we suffer together, we're called to first bear one another's burdens. We're called first to weep with those who weep. But let us also encourage each other in the Word. For it is the power of God to strengthen your brothers and sisters in trials. Let's look at our trials according to the Word, not as the world does. They are not failure. They are not interruptions in your life. They are part of God's plan to work something in you of eternal value. Thirdly and finally, the Word helps us deal with those who reject the Word. Verses 15 and 16. Paul speaks of the Jewish authorities, he says, who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out and displeased God and opposed all mankind by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved, so as always to fill up the measure of their sins. But wrath has come upon them at last. Paul's talking about the persecution that the church in Jerusalem had suffered and he and his team had suffered. These verses are controversial because if you read them without thinking through, you could take them as anti-Semitic. Let me just say very clearly, anyone who is submitted to the Word of God cannot be anti-Semitic. You can't be anti-Semitic and say you're a believer and a follower of Jesus. The Bible has lots to say to address this. And just in this context alone, we, we can think through some things. First, Paul is saying this. He is a Jew himself. He's not blaming ethnically Jewish people here. He's speaking of Jewish authorities and and the Jewish majority in Jerusalem who had rejected Christ. He is Jewish, and Jesus is Jewish. We use the word Jesus. That's not his name, by the way. Joshua would be a better translation, and and the Hebrew would be Yeshua. Jesus is a Greek version of his name. He's Jewish. And so certainly Paul is not speaking against ethnic Jewish people. We also know from Scripture that God's call on the Jewish people, ethnic uh, Israel, is irrevocable. God has a plan for them, and, and, and He will bring a final renewal, and that final renewal, as we read about it in Romans 11, will, will mean salvation for the world. They will usher in the end of the, all things and the redemption of all things. So there's more we could say from Scripture. Uh, these passages are not anti-Semitic. He's speaking of the, the reality that the Jewish leadership and the majority of the nation had really messed up. They had missed their promised king. And they, along with the Roman authorities, did indeed kill Jesus. And they had killed many of the prophets sent by God. And now they are indeed opposing Paul and the mission to the Jew and Gentiles. They're, they're doing what they had done in Thessal- Thessalonica. They're opposing the spreading of the gospel by slandering and using mob violence and driving Paul out and others out of the synagogue and the cities. And therefore, they are indeed opposing God and all mankind because it is God's will that all be saved. And they're saved by hearing the gospel. The very best thing anyone could experience from you is to hear the good news of Jesus. To see it, the fruit of it demonstrated in your life indeed, but to hear the good news. And and that's the best thing we can give someone else. And so Paul is saying, basically, these guys are opposing all mankind because they're opposing the spreading of the good news to these places. And therefore, they're not pleasing God. And they're in serious trouble. God in His justice has been patient. And, but Paul says, uh, God's wrath has come upon them at last. 
Paul's speaking about the time period, I believe the time period that they lived in, that it's in that time period that the wrath of God is coming against the Jewish authorities and, and, the, and Jew, the Jews as a nation. And I think we would best understand this as, as being most evidence in the destruction of Jerusalem. Jesus predicted it, right? Matthew 24, he predicted that, that Jerusalem would be destroyed, that it would be in judgment for the rejection of Jesus. And so that's what Paul's saying. He's saying, God has dealt with this. They have opposed mankind, they have opposed God, and now God's wrath comes upon them at last. There's some truth in here that's important for us to recognize. As, as we uh, deal with those who oppose us, we put our faith in God. We put our trust in Him. He is the one alone who has the right to bring vengeance, to bring justice, not us. So we leave room for God's wrath. Romans 12, 19-21 says, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So we trust the Lord. We trust Him to deal with those who oppose us. We, we are merciful to them. That's from Romans 12, written by Paul, who wrote these very things. If the band could come up as, as we close. The Washington Post in 2016 presented the following article related to what we're talking about. It says, Nickel Mines, Pennsylvania, a single word in black cursive font hangs above a large double-pane window in Terry Roberts' sunroom. It says, forgiven. The word in the room itself, a gift built by her Amish neighbors just months after the unimaginable occurred, is a daily reminder of all that she's lost and all that she's gained in the past 10 years. This simple, quiet rural life she knew shattered on October 2nd, 2006 when her oldest son, Charles, walked in through a one-room Amish schoolhouse on a clear, warm Monday morning. The 32-year-old husband and father of three ordered the boys and adults to leave, tied up 10 girls between the age of 6 and 13, and shot them, killing five and injuring others before killing himself. Terry Roberts' husband thought they'd have to move far away. He knew that people thought of parents what people thought of parents of mass murderers. He believed they would be ostracized in their community, blamed for not knowing the evil their child was capable of and doing something about it. But in the hours after the massacre, as Amish parents still waited in a nearby barn for word about whether their daughters had survived, an Amish man named Henry arrived at the Roberts' home with a message. The families did not see the couple as an enemy. Rather, they saw them as parents who were grieving the loss of their child, too. Henry put his hand on the shoulder of Terry Roberts' husband and called him a friend. The world watched in amazement as on the day of, of their son, Charles', Charles funeral, nearly 30 Amish men and women, some of the parents of the victims, came to the cemetery and formed a wall to block out media cameras. Parents whose daughters had died at the hand of their son approached the couple after the burial and offered condolences for their loss. And then just four weeks after the shooting, the couple was invited to meet with all the families in a local fire hall. One mother held Robert's, Roberta's, Robert's gaze as both women's 
eyes blurred with tears. She said they were all grieving and they were all struggling to make sense of the census. But the Amish did more than forgive the couple. They embraced them as part of their community. When, when uh, Roberts underwent treatment for stage 4 breast cancer in December, one of the girls who survived the massacre helped clean her home before she returned from the hospital. A large yellow bus arrived at their home around Christmas, and Amish children piled inside to sing her Christmas carols. The forgiveness is there. There's no doubt they forgive, Robert said. Stephen Nolta, professor of Amish studies at Elizabethtown College, said that, the most, that most people's forgiveness and acceptance come at the end of a long emotional process, but the Amish uh, forgive first and then every day work through the emotions of it. This decisional forgiveness opened a space for Roberts to offer her friendship, which is normally in their situation would be uncomfortable. Ten years later, the Amish families are still consciously deciding to forgive every day. The Word of God creates that power in us to do that. We can't do it on our own. Left to ourselves, we can't forgive those who, who persecute us, who mistreat us. But because of the Word, because of the truth of the Word, because of God working in us, we can turn around and forgive those who persecute. So let me ask you as we conclude, how do you need to trust God to work through his word to grant you power to forgive others and to trust him for justice? Who do you need to forgive? Is it a husband, a wife, a mom or dad, a child, a boss? Maybe it's just living a lifestyle of, of forgiveness and no longer getting mad at all those other incompetent drivers, but living out forgiveness for them, living out these truths in, in that application. So as we prepare to transition to communion, let's just take a minute, consider who we need to forgive and ask God for help, ask him for power as we contemplate his word. Maybe there's another aspect of the message as well that we can consider an application. We'll take a minute to do that, then we'll come back and transition to communion. So let's, let's just do that right now.